As we continue our study in Romans this evening, we're going to consider one body in Christ. One body in Christ. We're looking at Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through to 10. At the beginning of chapter 12, you could very easily have forgotten that Paul occupied the highest office in the church as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just look how Paul started chapter 12. Look at those first words there. I beseech you therefore, brethren. In those words, there is no apostolic injunction. He simply urges the Roman Christians as brothers in Christ to live lives that are consecrated to God. The tone is somewhat different now that we've arrived at verse 3. For the remainder of this chapter, we will see Paul speaking with all the authority of an apostle as he goes into the practicalities of presenting our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service, our spiritual worship. Look again at verse 3. There's none of that. No more, I beseech you therefore, he says, for I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God have dealt to every man the measure of faith. The grace spoken of at the beginning of verse 3 there, for I say through the grace given unto me, that is Paul's apostolic authority. And with that authority given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ, he is saying to all who are trusting in Christ alone for their acceptance before a holy and righteous God, that they are not to be proud and boastful. The temptation to exalt oneself and blow one's trumpet is nigh on irresistible. That is most certainly the way of the world and we can see that to be the case when, for example, a football player scores a goal. And what does he do nowadays? He, he, he's, he does a fancy little dance or perhaps some gymnastics as he's drinking in the praise and adoration of his teammates and of his adoring supporters. That's an example, but there's some of that, probably a lot of that, in all of us. Boasting, bragging about how wonderful we are. That is the way of a proud and boastful man, woman, boy or girl, who has never cried out to God for mercy and forgiveness for his or her sins. It should not be the way of Christians. In 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 and 16, the Apostle John, through the grace given to him as an apostle, says to Christians, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Think about those words. You love the world, the love of God is not in you. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh 
the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The pride of life, what is that? It's about having an insolent and empty assurance which trusts in its own power and resources. Again, that's the way of the world. An unregenerate world that is on its way to hell. And here in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, Paul tells the Romans and us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. No room for boasting. We are to guard against the pride of life or boasting about our abilities and our achievements. Remembering what Jesus said in John chapter 15 and verse 5. Without me, ye can do nothing. On the other hand, when you consider that God equips you for whatever he has called you to do in your Christian life, having prepared a work for you to do, indeed in eternity, God prepared a work for each one of you Christians to do as a Christian in order that you might glorify the God of your salvation and when you bear that in mind you are not to have a false humility or speak contemptuously about yourself and about your endeavours if you do that it doesn't really say much for the Holy Spirit who works in you to will and to do of God's good pleasure You are to think soberly. In other words, make an honest assessment of your capabilities without exaggerating or depreciating what God has equipped you to do for his glory. You are to think soberly according as God have dealt to every man the measure of faith, according to verse 3. In other words, according to the skills that God has blessed you with in his service and for his glory. Let's have a look at verses 4 and 5. For as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ and everyone members one of another. Paul often compares the church with the human body, and and he refers to it as the body of Christ. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 27 to 28, Paul said, For as the body is one, and have many members, and all the members of that one body being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Now, Ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. And God have set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues, as members in that one body of Christ. All those different offices, different skill sets, 
And in Colossians chapter 1 verse 24, Paul said, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. See, time and again he's speaking about the church as the body of Christ. Just as the human body has many members or parts, each with its own particular function, for in other words, in other words the foot the foot is for walking, the eye is for seeing, the ear is for hearing and so on. Christians are all members of the spiritual body of Christ and every believer has a particular function to perform in that body. As members of the body of Christ, whatever you do with whatever gifts God has bestowed to you, seek to glorify him individually and collectively. But don't go around saying that you can't do anything. There's something as a member of the body of Christ that you can do in order to glorify God. Let's have a look at verses 6 and 7. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching. As has already been explained, we don't all have the same skill set or the same levels of skill. We may do the same things, but some of us may be better than others at doing certain things. Which means that if we truly desire to serve our great God and Saviour inside and outside the church, we need to know when to step aside for someone who has received a greater measure of grace in that particular field. It's common sense really, isn't it? It, That would apply in the workplace and anywhere. You give way to someone who can do the job better than you. But it's not easy because pride gets in the way. But again, we're not to be proud people as members of the body of Christ. Each one of us who is in Christ is given gifts, charisma, according to God's grace, charis. Those gifts can all be used or misused. Paul names various God-given gifts to his people in verses 6 and 7. First of all on the list is prophecy. Strictly speaking, prophecy is the foretelling of future events. However, now that we have a completed Bible that contains all the prophecies and all the oracles of God, much of which points to and has been fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ, the gift of prophecy can now be broadened to incorporate a God-given ability to understand and explain the scriptures. Those who are called to proclaim the word of God must exercise that gift according to the proportion of faith. In other words, in accordance with the knowledge they have 
and without departing for the truth from the truth. Next is ministry. The word ministry, as it appears in verse 7, is often used in relation to the work of the apostles, but not exclusively. Ministry also relates to the work of church pastors and deacons, and more broadly, ministry applies to any true believer who is involved in Christian service, not just the pastor. For example, in Luke chapter 10, Martha, the sister of Lazarus, was cumbered about much serving, where serving means ministry. Martha was busy making preparations for her esteemed guest, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, as you can see, the word ministry has a wide application. And even though it is often used with reference to the work of elders and pastors, it extends to all who are in some way servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Serving in the church for the benefit of the church and for the glory of God. It goes without saying that your ministry is in vain. It's a waste of time. If what you do is in the flesh and in your own strength, as someone who is not trusting in Jesus as your saviour from sin, whatever it is you're doing, if you are not trusting in Christ, it's a waste of time. And your ministry is as filthy rags in God's sight. Also in verse 7 there is teaching. Teaching differs from prophecy in that it is to do with knowledge and it instructs the mind, whereas prophecy is to do with revelation. Most certainly anyone who desires the office of elder must be skilled in teaching, but also an ability to teach is a must for others in the church. I would say it's a must for Sunday school teachers and for anyone involved in expounding the word of God in the church. In verse 8, there is an exhortation. He that exhorteth on exhortation. Luther said, teaching is meant for the ignorant and exhortation for those who know. In other words, if teaching provides knowledge of what people ought to do, exhortation helps them to achieve it through advising, pleading, encouraging, warning, counselling and comforting them. I don't know about you, but I, I need both. I need teaching and I need exhortation. And I'm sure we all do. After exhortation, Paul says, He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. To give with simplicity means to give of yourself and not for yourself or for your vain glory. It means to give for the relief of fellow Christians and for the glory of God and not for self-recognition like the hypocrites who openly and publicly do their giving that they may have praise and glory of men. I think that's one reason why I, could, I can't stand it when the tray goes round or an open dish or something in churches. 
you know, it's, it's private, isn't it? What we give is a private thing. But you give of yourself and not for yourself and not for the praise of men. It's between you and God. You've already seen in verse 1 that you are urged to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. And when you do that, you should have no problem giving with simplicity. An inducement to give with simplicity is to think upon what? When you're giving with simplicity, you you may like to think of the God of your salvation who gave himself for you when he laid down his life, bearing away your sins. Still in verse 8, Paul says, He that ruleth with diligence, whether it is the pastor, or more broadly those who run church activities, such as Sunday schools, toddler groups, or whatever it may be, but primarily those in authority in the churches, there can be no room for procrastination and idleness. You're serving the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. When it comes to elders, our own church rules rightly say, elders are selected from above rather than elected from below. Since elders are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ and they have received their office from Jesus, they do well to discharge their duties which include feeding the sheep with good spiritual food and overseeing the church, doing those things for the glory of God. That is their calling. Last of all, in verse 8, he that showeth mercy is to do so with cheerfulness. Showing mercy means showing compassion or giving help beyond simply uttering some kind words with a nice smiley face. It involves a willingness to actually do something to alleviate the miseries of other Christians. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus gives examples of showing mercy, such as feeding the hungry, giving a drink to the thirsty Christians, taking strangers into your home, giving giving clothes to those who have need, visiting the sick and coming to those who are in prison. All of those acts of mercy ought to be second nature to born again Christians. Not something you do religiously, but you do it because that's what you do as a Christian. And when you do those things, as Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of the brethren of mine, you do for me. Looking at verse 9. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. The Greek word for love there is agape. It is not based on a feeling. It's not fuzzy feelings. It is a determined act of the will, a joyful resolve to put the welfare of others above our own. Sounds like a doing love to me, agape love. It is a love that Jesus spoke about in John chapter 13, verse 35, when he said, 
By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. We can see what agape love is all about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 4 through to 7 where Paul said, now in the King James Version it says charity, it's agape love but actually you can put the name of Jesus there. As I'm reading this you could very easily put the name of Jesus there but I'll read it as it is in the Bible. Charity suffereth long and is kind, charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Perhaps you can see that those verses describe the Lord Jesus Christ. He is agape love. And surely the greatest manifestation of agape love was at the cross, where the Lord Jesus Christ was lifted up to die, bearing away your sins, dear Christian. But also, Agape love is the first fruit of the Spirit. Earlier on, I read Galatians chapter 5 and we had the fruit of the Spirit. The first one there, love. Without the love, you may as well forget everything else. Agape love, fruit of the Spirit. Therefore, dear Christian, like me, you might well want to pray that you would bring forth more of the fruit of agape love. I mean that most sincerely. I certainly acknowledge and recognise that I am lacking, shall we say, in that fruit. And I pray for more love, an agape love for the glory of God. So you could pray that you would bring forth more of the fruit of that love, agape love, without dissimulation or hypocrisy, that's what it means. Love without hypocrisy, to the end that you might be more like Jesus, the one who is love, and who demonstrated a pure and unfeigned agape love for you at the cross when he was wounded for your transgressions. Also in verse 9, you are to abhor that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. To abhor means to have a horror of and it is only mentioned once in the whole of the New Testament. Christians are to be continually repulsed by all the evil that is without them in the world and all the evil that is still within them. As Paul said, within me dwelleth no good thing, O wretched man that I am. Again, that doesn't mean Beating yourself up. The Holy Spirit is working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. Day by day you are being transformed by the renewing of your mind. You look to the Holy Spirit to to um, conform you to the image of Christ. To mould you and to shape you. 
But even so, even so, there's not a day that goes by when you do not abhor the evil within and without. It is only by keeping your mind fixed on Jesus and his word that you will cleave to that which is good. As a Christian, I'm talking about, take your eyes off Jesus, you see for yourself how quickly you can go back to the ways of this world. As the hymn writer rightly said, when he spoke about the grace that saved him, the grace that keeps him, and the grace that will take him home. It's the grace of God from start to finish. And for your part, you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. As Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4 verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, I'm seeing Jesus all the, all the, everywhere, everywhere here, you know, I won't make any apologies for this, I see Jesus in, whatsoever things are true, Jesus. Whatsoever things are honest, Jesus. Whatsoever things are just, Jesus. Whatsoever things are pure, Jesus. Whatsoever things are lovely, most certainly Jesus. Whatsoever things are of good report, Jesus. If there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Meditate upon your great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Let's have a look at verse 10. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love. In honour, preferring one another. There's more about love here, isn't there, in verse 10. We've seen love in verse 9. Well, that was an agape love in verse 9. But now it's a different love. Philadelphia. The brotherly love spoken of here is Philadelphia. And since Christians really are one family with the same Heavenly Father, we are to have a Philadelphia love for one another in honour, preferring one another. This world is characterised by self-aggrandizement and blowing one's own trumpet. However, we who are Christians are to take the lead in honouring others rather than honouring ourselves. Instead of considering how wonderful we are and how terrible others are, we do well to consider the qualities of other Christians whilst considering our own faults. Next week we'll continue with Paul's exhortations to all who are saved from their sins and justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For now, dear Christian, as you thank God that your acceptance before him is in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, make it your prayer that the Holy Spirit would work in you to live in conformity with what we've been considering to the end that you might present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Amen.